So I have discovered that in my marriage with Brianna, uh, that she is kind of the declutterer in the family, the declutterer, which I guess makes me the hoarder. She likes to get rid of stuff. I like to keep stuff. She likes to throw stuff away. I like to keep it and stack it and put it everywhere. And we have different philosophies behind that. For her, she's like, once it loses its function, why would we ever keep it? <laughs> Got an amen from Ruth in the front over here. But then some other people in the church, like me, would say, you never know when you're going to need that electric cable. You never know when the world is going to end and you're going to need those old batteries. For me specifically, the last uh, battle that ensued uh, was with clothes. I, I guess, I've never noticed this about myself, but I guess I have been accumulating clothes for the duration of our marriage. We've been married for 11 years. And there are clothes in my closet that are so old that they don't fit me, they're falling apart, or they're simply out of style. I have clothes in my closet that are older than some of you have been alive they go all the way back to the 90s, and they look like it. They look like something pulled out of Pearl Jam's closet right there. Nobody wears them, and I wouldn't wear them. And that's the silly thing. It's like, I, they don't fit me. They have no function. I would never be caught wearing any of these clothes. They're falling apart, and yet I can't bring myself to get rid of them, just in case. Just in case what? I don't know. It's just in my mind. Just in case. Just in case someone's dying in the living room and they need a tourniquet and I have some plaid. I don't know. Like I just, everything in my house, I'm like, I need it. I might need it. Who knows if I'll need it? And that's enough. The problem has come recently when the stacks of clothes that I never use or wear start taking up room and I start hopefully adding clothes that I will wear to the closet or to the, uh, to the shelves, and there's no room there. And that's created a problem. Uh, Brianna pointed out, and I've noticed because of her wisdom and help, uh, that I've actually started losing my new clothes because they're buried under these huge caverns of old clothes that I'll never use before. And finally, she just calls me out. She's like, this is ridiculous. And she starts pulling out those hefty garage, uh, uh, garbage bags. She's all, fill them up. At one point, she even bribed me. She's all, if you throw away clothes, I'll buy you some new ones. I have discovered that if there are too many old clothes in my closet, I cannot make room for the new clothes that I get. I want you to hear that right now because that's what the whole sermon's about. Sometimes the old stuff in our closet is taking up so much room that the new stuff that we get has nowhere to be. Sometimes the old stuff in our life takes up too much room so that we can't fit anything else, including the good stuff. The title of my sermon today is called Clean Out Your Closet. Clean Out Your Closet. Because God wants to do something good in your life. He wants to do some work in your life. I don't know what it is, but I know he wants to do it, and I know it's going to be good. But there is too much room in your life, perhaps, that is being taken up by old stuff that has nothing to do with you anymore. God wants to make you whole. And who in this room doesn't want to be made whole? That's like a silly rhetorical preacher question, right? 
Like who in this building would say, if I were like, do you want to be made whole? No, I don't. I want to be broken and tattered. No one in their right mind would say yes to that. All of us want to be whole. All of us probably want to live authentic lives. By that, I mean our mind, our body, our soul, our relationships, all being made complete and going in the same direction by the will of God. Who doesn't want that? All of us do. But have any of you ever ever experienced this where you have something that you want, maybe that gets kindled at church on Sunday, and you're like just pumping your fist after Sunday like, yes, 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 God's will. And then Monday comes, and you find yourself, in the words of Paul, not doing the thing that you want, but doing the very thing that you hate. Not doing that which your heart actually loves. Do you ever find that living for Christ can sometimes be difficult to do naturally? It's not automatic. And sometimes not only is it not natural or automatic, sometimes it's difficult. And the thing that we truly want somewhere down there is to do the opposite. Perhaps some of you are confused by that. I thought, I love Jesus. How come I have such a difficult time doing the things that Jesus tells me to do? For example, we might love Jesus. I have no doubt there's a lot of people in this room who love Jesus. And yet in a moment of anxiety or a crisis, we revert back to our old habits without even thinking about it. Revert back to relational brokenness and behaviors, emotional reactions, patterns that are more like our family of origin rather than the family of Christ. Uh, perhaps passive aggressiveness or sarcasm or gossip. And we wonder, where did that come from? Ways of believing and seeing others or perhaps some other harmful behaviors that we're not even planning or intending to do that just come out in a moment of anxiety. And you're left there on Monday after Sunday going, what just happened? I don't want to do that. Why do I keep doing it? Has anyone ever woken up saying, how come I don't do the things that I want to do? All of us here want to live authentic lives. How come we have such a difficulty actually living authentic lives? The second point is is because there is a conflict within you between the things that you love. In uh, Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, the whole idea there at the beginning of this passage is to set your mind on things above. I think that's everyone in here, that's our goal. We want to put our mind where God is. We want to think about things that he does. Not only our minds, but we want to put our whole selves in that direction. But we find a conflict between the things that we love. And we see this alluded to in Paul in verse 5 when he says, Put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. There's the conflict in that first phrase. There is something in you. And he's speaking to Christians here. There's something in you that needs to be put to death. There's something that is not authentic to who you actually are in Christ. And it's in you. It's a remnant. It's leftover. It needs to be put to death. Very powerful language from Paul. It needs to be mortified, as the old English uh, writers would say. What is it that needs to be put to death? And this is where he says, uh, that which is earthly in you. Earthly. Now, he's not speaking about earth, earthy things. He's not talking about like wine tasting or drinking tea and the taste of peat moss on your tongue or whatever. When Paul speaks about earthly, he's speaking in the same way about uh, what he often refers to as the flesh. Uh, In fact, that's one of his favorite words is the flesh. Earthly, fleshly, uh, it all refers to the same thing. It refers not just to the body, 
And see, we err when we see Paul speaking about the flesh and saying, uh, Paul hates the physical material world, including the body, and he loves the spirit. That's not the Bible. That's more like uh, Plato's way of thinking or Gnostic heresy in the second century. The Bible could not be farther from that. The Bible loves the body and the physical world. God's whole design in his kingdom is to renew the physical world and to restore it to its rightful beauty under God. And the body, the physical body, God made to be good and he made it to be glorious. First Corinthians says that the body was made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God loves the body. In other words, and, and that's why Jesus would say that the best way that you can live is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. You hear that? To love God with your whole body. So what is he speaking about when he says flesh or earthly? We're speaking in metaphor really to refer simply to the remnant in all of us as believers that is still going contrary to the will of God. Now, that doesn't just affect your body, does it? It affects your thought life. It affects your heart, your emotions. It affects your ambitions and your dreams. It affects the whole person. So it's not just your skin and bones. It is that invisible thing that is still left over inside of you that is hostile to the will of God. I love this definition by the scholar Anthony Thistleton, who says, the outlook of the flesh is the outlook oriented towards the self. Listen to this. That which pursues its own ends in self-sufficient independence of God. Any remnant of that still inside of you, that's what Paul is referring to when he talks about the flesh. And it's not just murder or theft or adultery. It's any time, even the small times, where God has a plan for us and we walk away in self-sufficiency and independence to control our own lives, the flesh. That's why Paul would say in places like Romans chapter 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't do what God wants. Indeed, it cannot. That's why we go on to say in Romans uh, chapter 7, verse 18, nothing good dwells within me. You might be baffled by that. You're like, Paul? Of course something good dwells in you. You're writing the book of Romans right now. That's good. But then, his, but then the second part of his sentence, nothing good dwells within me. That is in my flesh. Jesus, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Do you see? It's that element in you that is at conflict with the truest part of you in Christ. In other words, you have conflicting loves. If you have been born again by faith in Christ, your heart has been set free to love God. And if you've been born again, you might be feeling that new sense of urgency, like, oh my goodness, I understand now. God is incredible. I love him. That's all I want for my life. Yes. And yet, over and over, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you feel this, this war between you. It's a conflict of loves. There is a turf war going on inside of each and every one of you. Now, if you have not been born again in Christ, there is no turf war. It's just flesh. You are positively, unadulteratedly turned in the opposite direction of God. But when his spirit invades your heart and you become a believer, follower of Christ, there's this conflict inside. It's not the real you anymore, but it's still there, hoping that you'll give it some middle ground. 
And so Paul says, put to death the remnants of the flesh in you, that which is earthly. Kill it. Get it out. Doesn't need to be there anymore. And from there, he goes on to describe two lists of vices. In other words, he's giving us an example of some of the leftover things that the Colossians might have had in their life. Uh, The first one is very personal, has to do with our desires. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, right? Uh, He goes on to start by naming a list of sexual sin, sexual sin and desires. Now, I don't know why particularly Paul is highlighting sexual sin. There's so much else out there that he could throw into this list, but he, he certainly has it in his focus. He could talk about greed. He could talk about lust for power, but he's naming off sexual sins, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, which is just another word for lust, and evil desires. Now, it could be that uh, he is highlighting, maybe for Paul, he's highlighting what most of us know, that that is truly something that gets a grip on the human heart and the body and the mind. Or perhaps it's something that the Colossians in particular were going through and he's contextualizing with them. Or maybe, uh, as some have pointed out, that he's listing a trajectory, uh, starting with covetousness, that is wanting something that's not yours, and how left untethered, left uncontrolled, it can turn into something else like evil desire and eventually passion and eventually impurity and then sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is a general term for any type of sex uh, expressed outside of the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. And so maybe that's what he's doing, highlighting that, hey, covetousness, wanting something that's not yours, it doesn't sound dangerous at first, but Left unchecked, it can turn into so much more. Maybe that's what he's doing. I don't know. What I do know is that he ends that whole list with idolatry. And idolatry is just that word picture in Exodus that means to replace God as the source of your worship with something else. In other words, what Paul is doing here is he's taking something like sexual immorality or even something seemingly insignificant as wanting something that's not yours. And he's saying, you are now placing yourself in the seat of God. That's idolatry. And I actually like that he puts sexual immorality and all the other uh, uh, parallels to that right there in the, in the list of vices because in our culture, that's so easy to brush off as harmless. I'm not hurting anybody. This is my choice. And don't you want me to be happy? What's so bad about me sleeping with somebody I love? And yet Paul says, wrong. You are hurting somebody. This is an affront to a holy God who has made you in his image and who has created your body for his glory. Then he shifts gears after he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Uh, Wrath there is not like the caricature perhaps a lot of us have grown up with, like God just shooting bullets of rage uh, frivolously at people in a vengeful spirit and uh, uh, just angrily. Uh, Wrath is really just the accumulation of God's holiness and love, not wanting people to destroy themselves or his honor. And so this is simply Paul saying there's going to come an end to all that is not right with the world. Uh, But then he calls us to something. 
He says, in these you too once walked when you were living them. God's going to take care of all of this. He's going to make the world right. But as believers who are walking with Christ, do that right now. Put to death the things that are hanging out that don't need to be there anymore. So he speaks about personal desires. Notice then that he shifts gears in verse 8. He says, in these you too once walked when you were living them, but now you must put them all away. What? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now he's shifting gears and he's speaking about relational disunity. He was speaking about desires. Now he's speaking about disunity. Uh, And perhaps he's using that trajectory again. That sometimes things start with anger that seem insignificant and harmless, but left unchecked, it can turn into wrath, which can turn into malice, which can turn into us actually slandering one another, which can turn into obscene talk. I don't know. But here's what I do know is that Paul, in a matter of verses, is highlighting what seems to be the opposite of what Jesus spoke of as being the best way to live. The greatest commandment in the universe is what? To love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. The best way that a human being can live, our greatest capacity, was to be uh, filled with the ability to love God completely with our complete selves and to love people in the same way. And so Paul here is almost flipping the the, the opposite side of the coin, saying, if that is the best way to live and you've been raised with Christ, put away everything in your closet that is keeping you from realizing what you were made to live for. Throw it away. Throw away the stuff that you think you're trying to hang on to that you think you might need later. It's not worth it clothes left in the closet that we don't want to get rid of, that we're clinging to because we might use it later. Clothes that we're hanging on to that we're like, oh, I'm just used to the way it feels on my shoulders. I like being a controlling person. I like it. I love Jesus too, but I just want to wear this a little bit just so people don't walk over me. I know I'm an angry person and I struggle with outbursts and irritations and I cut people down, but you never know when you're going to need it. I know that shirt is outdated, but you never know when it's going to come in handy and when you might need to, need to burst out in anger to protect yourself. And the list goes on and on. Paul is calling us to clean out our closets, clothes left in the closet that we don't want to get rid of. But it's not just the clothes that we don't want to get rid of. It's the ones that we don't even know are there. Have you ever op- uh, opened up the door and did some deep spring cleaning and found stuff that you haven't seen in years and are wondering why in the world is that even there? Those trinkets from that one Christmas from 1997? That shirt that you would be just humiliated to death if somebody saw you in it? Stuff that you were like, I cannot believe, I didn't even realize I still had that. See, there are things in our lives that when I, when I talk about choices, patterns of thinking, and behaviors, you're like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. Mm. Well, I'm going to go to the bathroom right now. Well, then there's things that you're not even thinking about that are there because they're ingrained habits. They happen automatically, naturally, without you even thinking about it. Ways of relating to people, patterns of thought, destructive habits. And Paul calls us 
to clean out the closet because inside of us is a conflict between the things that we love. What we love, born again by Christ, and what our old nature, the flesh. That's why the NIV translates flesh as sinful nature. That remaining part of us is still clinging on to. In other words, Paul is telling us, reminding us, we have a new identity given to us in Christ. And sometimes we can't fit it into our lives because there is an old self that still has its foot in the door. This isn't God trying to ruin our fun, trying to take stuff out of our life. He's trying to bring heaven into our lives. And yet some of us, because we can't get rid of that old stuff that's still in the closet, we also can't introduce the new self that God wants to crown us with because the old self still has its foot in the door like a squatter. Some time ago, I uh, spoke at the reality in London, covering for the lead pastor there, and uh, his name's Tim, and Tim wasn't there, so his right-hand man took care of me, a born and raised Londoner. Now, when uh, when I think of London, I think of two different styles. I think of the royal London, and that type of person, like Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, whatever. And then I think of this guy. His name's Gary Bruce, Garrison Bruce. He's the kind of guy with like a beanie on his head, with a big old beard and a growl. He's the type of guy that dresses in all black that you just don't want to meet in a dark alley. Except he's super nice. Like he's one of the ministers there at the church, super chill, but looks scary. And Garrison Bruce uh, hosted me at his home with his wife, that's where I stayed. And as he was bringing me to his apartment complex, I come up to the apartment complex and I see just dozens of apartment rooms. All of them are boarded up and dark. And there's his right at the bottom, lit up and beautiful. I'm all, what's going on here? Does anyone else live here, just you? That's scary. Don't kill me. And he says to me, oh, this is, the, this is part of what the land tenants, the owners, Uh, allowed me as a part of my job here at this apartment complex. I get a reduced rate for my uh, living expenses. I get half off, and in exchange for that, I am what they refer to as a property guardian. I said, a what? I said, a property guardian. I said, what? I said, a property guardian. I said, oh, a property guardian. Got it. Okay. What does a property guardian do? And he goes on to describe a property guardian is someone who remains in that broken down apartment complex to live and to chase out squatters. Squatters. I said, what is a squatter? And he says, a squatter is somebody who comes in illegally into a space that does not belong to them in order to set down their residence free of charge. And my job as a property guardian is to keep out the squatters because they have no right to be there. I said, oh, well, that'll preach. (laughs) Here's a beautiful thing about you if you are in Christ. Your past has no rights over you. Your sin has no rights over you. Not even the devil has any rights over you. 
Christ has made an open show over the devil on the cross. We saw that in Colossians chapter 2, embarrassing him in front of the cosmos, rendering him powerless, not only in the kingdom, but over everyone who calls on Christ. That means if you're a son or daughter of the Most High God, Satan has no power over you. Your sin has no power over you. That's why Paul could say in the book of Romans, no longer let sin reign in your mortal body. He's saying, don't give it permission. It has, no, it has no rights over you. And yet, how many of us walk into life not realizing what our rights are? Here's what you need to understand this morning. Just because the devil doesn't have any rights in your life doesn't mean that he's not a squatter. And he is looking, as Peter said in his epistle, for somebody to devour. That means even though sin, the devil, his influence has no rights over the Christian, over the believer, you might not know what your rights are. And if you don't know what your rights are, Satan is a squatter. He might put his foot down and say, well, Chris Lazo, he doesn't even realize that I'm here. Well, I think I'll just set up a futon. Get used to this space. Satan is a squatter. In fact, just like in Colossians where we're told to put off anger, Ephesians would say the same thing, except it would say it this way. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, be angry, just don't sin. Anger is not a sin. But don't hang on to it, assuming that it would turn into unforgiveness and resentment and bitterness. Why? His next line is, by doing so, you give a foothold to the devil. The word for foothold is tapas. That's where we get the, the phrase topography. And it refers to a space. Paul is literally telling us that by carrying on to some of those old clothes in the closet, you release space for squatters. He's saying you don't have to. In fact, as a believer, as one in whom Christ dwells and the Spirit of God is upon, your job is is to kick the squatters out. Paul is calling on us to clean out our closet. He's saying there's better stuff for you to put on. There's better clothes for you to wear. Squatters aren't meant for this abode. Your spirit is meant for this. Kick out the squatters. That's why he uses such vehement and powerful language. Colossians 3 verse 5, put to death, therefore, that which is earthly in you. Verse 8, put, but now you must put them all away. Verse 9, seeing that you have put off your old self with its practices. Do you hear that? Put to death, put away, put off. Paul is calling on the believer to say, get rid of that stuff. It doesn't belong there. It doesn't have any right to be there. But until you put your foot down, identify it as the squatter that it is, and kick it out by your rights as a believer in Christ, it's going to occupy that space. And you don't want it to occupy that space. I asked Gary Bruce, Garrison Bruce, what is your, what is your role here as a property guardian? He said, I have two, th- two roles. The first is just to be a presence here. That just means I put a fire in the fireplace. I turn the light on in the living room. We park our car in the driveway. Me and my wife, we drive in and out, and we just, just provide some activity on the premises, and that usually scares off most would-be squatters. But there's always a couple that are a little more bold that will say, maybe they won't notice that we're here, and we can take up residence, and so he must go from door to door 
and make sure that they're gone. And let me tell you, you don't want Garrison Bruce knocking on your window in a broken apartment complex in the middle of the night. Paul is calling for some property guardians or for some believers to step into their role as property guardians. This is the temple of the living God. May his spirit dwell here and nothing else. But notice that Paul doesn't just stop with putting to death old loves. But, and this is my last point, we, we actually need new loves to replace the old loves. I love that, uh, that he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He's not just taught calling you to uproot stuff in your life. He's calling you to plant new stuff, get new clothes, introduce a new residence, fill it with something better. I love that too because one of the driest forms of religion is simply the mere removal of bad stuff. That's not a delightful way to live. Anyone ever lived that way before? Where your spirituality is simply a matter of not doing the wrong thing. That's boring and lifeless, and enslaving. Why is that the case? Because you were not meant to simply be a vacuum. Your heart was meant to be filled with all the fullness of God. God doesn't say get rid of some of this stuff because he wants you to be empty. He's saying get rid of that stuff because I got something better for your life. Paul's point, in other words, is that you must replace that stuff. I love how some of the Theologians of old, specifically the Puritans, who weren't perfect, but they had some great language, used to speak of this. Uh, they used to call our loves affections. That was a, one of the old English words. And affections to them wasn't merely a matter of emotion. It's not something that I'm thrilled by necessarily. But affections or the loves of the heart was really the orientation of your heart towards a common goal. The Puritans used to speak of our orientation towards something, and everything that you do and think flows out of what you think is the end goal. That's your orientation, the telos, your affections. And one of them in particular said it this way in his book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, Thomas Calmers. Listen to this. We have already affirmed how impossible it is for the heart by any innate elasticity of its own to just cast the world away from it and thus reduce itself to a wilderness. You hear what he's saying there? If all the Christian life was about was just get, getting rid of bad stuff, we would wither. We would turn into a wilderness. He goes on to say, the heart is not constituted that way. And the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. This is what Paul is saying. It's not enough to just get rid of bad stuff. You must replace it with better things. You must replace old clothes with better clothes. You must replace lesser loves with better loves. You must replace squatters with Gary Bruce. You must replace that which has been enslaving you with that which is freeing you. You need a new wardrobe. Maybe that's why Paul said at the end of his letter to the Romans, Put on, uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no room for the flesh. The 
good news is that in Christ we have something better to point the affections of our heart towards. A new self to love. Christ in us, the hope of glory. But like all of Christ's gifts that are given to us free of charge, we actually have to put it on. Turn to someone next to you and say, you got to put it on. Come on, you're getting sleepy. I got to wake you up right now. Turn to the other person and say, you got to put it on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, for as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see what he's saying? He's saying this is the way of Jesus. We aren't just brought into that family. We are now called to put it on by the power of the Holy Spirit. So get rid of the things that are holding you back and put on this better life in Christ. Notice that it all leads to love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. How do we do it? Well, what Paul says in this passage is what he would say elsewhere all over his letters. What James says, what Jesus says, what Peter says Almost the same exact pattern showing up all over the New Testament. And I can tell you in two different commands. The first one is we need new scripts to transform the way that we think. It all starts in the mind. That's why Colossians 3 starts off with set your mind on things that are above. He's not talking about thinking about clouds and harps. But to change the way that you think. New ideas. It all starts in the mind with what we think. And the primary and most effective way of changing the way that you think is by getting your face between the pages. There is no better way to give yourself a new script than to listen what God has already said to you. I'm using that metaphor script because I love it. I was once in a play uh, and never again. But that play that I was in was really fun. I was given a script and a costume and I'm, like, I'm that type of personality that wants to be unique. I don't want people to do stuff for me or give me a way of doing it. I want to do it myself. And so, but I couldn't write my own script. Someone gave me another script. And even though I cringed a little bit at that, uh, I ended up loving it. Because through that script, the words, the lines I was supposed to memorize and think on and act out and characterize, I started over the, those weekends to get sucked into a compelling story, something bigger than me. It's the same with the story of God. God is on a mission to take everything that is broken, to renew it and to restore it to its rightful place at the throne of Jesus Christ. And you have a part to play. And there's a script there to change the way that we think. Romans chapter 12 verse 2, we are transformed how? By the renewing of our minds. And the best way to do that is in the scriptures. If you've never done that before, just open up one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or the Psalms, or one of Paul's letters, and just start reading and getting captivated in the story. New scripts to transform the way that we think. But we can't just stop there. How many of you have right ideas about God, but have sometimes tripped up or failed to actually do those things that he calls you to do? So we don't just need new scripts, new ways of thinking. We need new practices. The only way to change a bad habit is to replace it with a new one. And the only way that we can replace it with a new one is to do one thing over and over and over. Spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. 
It's been said that the only way that you can, the the amount of time it takes to install a new habit is about 66 days. That's two months. Can you imagine what would happen to your spiritual life if you're like, I'm going to read a psalm a day for 66 days? When I wake up, I'm just going to be silent before the Lord. I'm going to do that for two months. Could you imagine if you took that into your relational uh, spaces, your workplace, instead of uh, firing off an angry email as I'm prone to do, I'm going to wait 24 hours before I hit send. And in those 24 hours, I'm just going to seek the face of God. So you're not just, just pouring new scripts into your mind. You are doing that. Maybe your problem is, I'm just not patient. I'm one of the most unpatient people in the world, and I keep running people over. Well, what could you do? By the power of the Spirit of God in you, you start investing in your mind what God says about you. Maybe for you, it's Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I can be patient because I'm lacking in nothing. And you just say that over yourself day after day after day. You start believing it. It starts shaping who you are from the inside out. But then you add a practice to it. Not only are you telling yourself what the word says, I I have no lack because God is my father, but now you're practicing it. So for example, maybe you say for 66 days, I'm going to get in the longest line at the grocery store. And I'm going to teach my flesh who's boss. As Paul would say, I buffet my body and I bring it under strict control so that after I have preached, I myself will not be disqualified. The flesh will worship the king. Maybe it's just reading scripture. Maybe it's simply coming to church every Sunday, even though you don't feel like it. But this is, this is something that forms you over time. It might feel dry. It might feel hard. It might feel challenging. But the Bible says as our mind is changed and we get new ideas and we install new practices that become habits, all in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit for the reason of getting more of Christ, not just merely more religious, will start to slowly be reoriented towards the person that we love. This is how the apostles continue to tell us how to put off the old self and to allow the new self to come to life in us. This is how we put things to death. Notice that the apostles never describe the Christian life as just coming to church or walking down the aisle or becoming a member of a local congregation or doing good things. Over and over, you hear the cry of, especially Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. Christianity is a call to die to yourself and to follow a better life. And yet, we also see that it doesn't eradicate our personality. It doesn't get rid of who we truly are. It actually brings who we truly are to life. Paul would go on to say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We are living our lives in Christ. One of the best ways to live. So here's my closing question for you. What's in your closet? What's been hanging out? And I don't say this to guilt trip you or to bring shame into your life. The uh, book of Romans says that God draws us to repentance by his kindness, and I hope that you sense his kindness today 
that he wants something better for you than to be stuck. But for us to be unstuck, the first place we have to start is with honesty, transparency, and vulnerability. And to look in the closet and say, what have I left there? And to allow Christ in all of his power to set us free. For some of you, that just means you need to be born again. Some of you are just all flesh. You might even be wondering, like, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I think I am. I come to church. Does that count? I don't know. For you, you need to be born again, as Jesus called us to. And maybe the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart, and you just, all you need to do is respond to that in faith. Say, Christ, I don't have all the answers to all of my questions, but I know this much. You are better than everything. I want to die to my old life and follow you. And then from there, just get plugged into this Christian community and start learning what it means to set your mind on things that are above. Then there's a second category of people. You're already Christians. Whether you just became a Christian yesterday or you've been a Christian for 20 years, every single one of us in this room who is a believer still has a little bit of flesh in the corner of our closet. My question to you is, what is it? I've often heard of the story of uh, World War II uh, prisoners of war uh, who were so far away from the center of action that when the war was over, they didn't actually get news that the war was over until years out. And some of them remained in prison even though they were positionally free. In other words, they were positionally free but functionally enslaved. And it was not until the word came to them that they were free and they stepped out of the cave that they were dwelling in, that it caught up. There might be some Christians in this room who are positionally free. You know who Christ is. You've been born again. You know it's yours in him. You know that you're a son or daughter of God, but there's something still in your closet that is keeping you from the fullness of God in Christ. You are positionally free, but functionally enslaved. And I think what God brought you here into this room to tell you today is that you are a son or daughter of God. You are not meant to live functionally enslaved. You are meant to be free, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that means there are some people in this room who need to start identifying where the squatters are and handing them eviction notices in Jesus' name. They're saying, you don't belong here anymore. And I'm not going to have you. You don't fit me. You don't look good on me. And I have no use for you. Get out in Jesus' name. New scripts and new patterns. Some of you need to start looking at old clothes and saying, that's gross. Ew. Nasty. Get out of here. And start saying, I instead want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no room for that old wardrobe. So where do you want to be free? I'm going to ask Robert, Colette, and Gabrielle to come out here as we sing about our freedom. And as we do, I want you to ask this question of yourself. Where do you want to be free? Maybe it's a vice, a habit, an addiction. Maybe it's a thought process, a way of thinking you can't be free from. Maybe it's a reactionary attitude or a perspective you have about certain people or certain things. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's some feeling you can't control. Maybe it's cravings. I don't know what it is, but maybe you do. Whatever you can't stop doing that is not contributing to your highest goal in Christ. It's tripping you up and it's keeping you from the fullness that you were made for. 
I hope at this point that you have become hungry for something deeper. And so I want you to identify what that is. And instead of running from it, and instead of trying to fix it, I want you to do what Christians have been doing for thousands of years. Invite Jesus into the brokenness of your flesh to do what he does the best. Destroy the sin in our flesh. Invite him there. And do whatever he tells you. Because Jesus is good. And he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And he didn't just come to forgive you of your past wrongs. He came, you, uh, he came to give you newness of life and to show you the pathway in which to step.